Well, I bid you welcome again on this Reformation Sunday and would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians, beginning in verse 14. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, our text this morning will go to verse 18. You can find it in the navy blue Bibles that are in your pew on page 1160, 1160. And so hear these words. For He Himself, that is speaking of our Lord Jesus, He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. I will give you a warning from the outset. I think, at least in my head, I wanted three sermons out of this. I have narrowed it to one. Because I I know in one sense, there's a sense in which when it comes to watching the clock and keeping the timer, at the encouragement of my brother Will Smith, I don't care. There are some adjustments I make to that when I'm competing with the smell of hot food. I just want you to be aware. Just Right, yeah, okay, and I hear the amens there as well. And so on a feast day, I am more conscious of the clock. However, you will recall from last week that we looked at verses 11 through 13. We confirmed that Paul is addressing an audience either majority Gentile or exclusively Gentile, that is not ethnic Jews. He says at one point, all of you were far off, verse 13, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. I want to begin this sermon by saying that the Jew-Gentile distinction and the Jew-Gentile, to use Paul's word here, hostility in the ancient world is hard for us 21st century Americans to grasp. We find ourselves living in a nation whose founders, at the very least, assumed the coherence of a Christian worldview. What I what I'm draw from that is because our nation was founded as one that was majority convinced by the words of Scripture and the words of the Gospel, we tend, culturally, to take for granted the idea that ancient tribal hostilities can be dissolved under a new banner of unity. Right? Jesus Christ has, has proven that that can happen. So because that's sort of what we grow up in, both ancestrally and presently for many of us, we assume that's possible. It is a distinctly Christian idea. It's why most of us, including at various times in history, our own American military brass, have trouble understanding conflict in the Middle East. Because we have a very poor grasp of the power of ancient tribal hostility and blood feud, which we like to tell ourselves that we've totally buried and forgotten. But perhaps the easiest way to get at what Paul is talking about in our passage here this morning 
is that Christ, just to say Christ, by His death has killed something. Namely, in this text, He has killed one of the most hairy, ugly, beastly dragons that humanity has ever known. That is hostility to one another. Okay? That the enmity that humanity plants between ourselves, which can often run very deep and very ugly, that Jesus Christ has killed that dragon. And I, I want to I keep emphasizing that, that Paul uses this, this bloody language, that Jesus didn't just put the hostility to sleep, He killed it. In this passage, we find at least three proclamations from Paul that we're going to walk through. There are many other parts of this text that could be a point four, five, and six, and so on, but I've got three, at least three for you this morning. First, that hostility has been abolished. Second, that re reconciliation has been established. And then third, that peace has been proclaimed. Okay? That hostility has been abolished, or if you like, you can put in the margin, killed. Uh, he also says abolished. Second, reconciliation established. Third, peace proclaimed. So that's our structure for this morning. So then let us begin. Let's start at verse 14. For He, that is Jesus, He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, again he's speaking Jews and Gentiles, both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There it is. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two jew gentile so making peace so i'm going to point this out to you just here from the text and we'll come back to it later we start off with he is our peace we close with he's making peace because both are true okay this is a hard it's this um this peace that Jesus has made between Jew and Gentile in the New Testament, and then perhaps, let's say, the larger conversation, which I'm going to call ethnic hostility, is a hard conversation to have sometimes. To talk about how Jesus Christ has declared unity in the midst of hostilities, and in this context, ethnic hostilities, rather appropriate thing to reflect on in the midst of the war that we just prayed about. The concept of ethnic hostility is not, familiar, not unfamiliar to us or to history. But we have complicated matters, I think, by bringing in terminology that is either foreign or I'll just say less familiar in the Scriptures. Today we often speak of, of racism, say, and the sin of racism. And while that is a good attempt to get at a very real sin and a very real problem, ugly problem in the human heart, a lot of the terminology has been so twisted it can actually be more difficult to have the conversation about these things because, I don't know if you know this, it's impossible to have clear conversations with competing dictionaries. Okay? It's impossible to have clear conversations with competing dictionaries. And a lot of our sort of culture disagreements, culture war stuff is rooted in disagreements over who gets to modify the dictionary. Okay, And so some, some of that today, the way it takes shape with the sin of racism, which I'm going to call a sin, by the way, uh, is that only certain people can commit it and other people can't. And that's why I think the term has, has lost its sufficiency. Now, the sin has not lost its potency, but I think the term has lost its sufficiency because the Bible teaches us that, teaches us that there is one race, namely the human race. 
You might argue the Bible speaks of two, uh, two peoples, those who are in Christ, those who are outside of Christ. Uh, so the church, for example, in 1 Peter 2.9, quoting from the Old Testament, is called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and so on, right? For this reason, I think the better terminology to serve us here in our Ephesians text this morning would be the terminology of ethnicity. And that we can be helped by use of two terms. You can write these in your notes if you're a note-taking type. Ethnic animosity and ethnic vainglory. Ethnic animosity, which is hatred, and ethnic vainglory, which is pride. Ethnic animosity being when we despise our neighbors of a different ethnicity or tribe or whatever. Ethnic vainglory is when I am pompously proud of the superiority of my tribe, of my group, which enables me to look down on you or slander you or despise you and your tribe. Now that, I think, is a step in the right direction in terms of clarity about what we're talking about. But to be honest with you, there's not even total agreement about what constitutes ethnicity. Is it, is it natural boundaries? Is it cultural? Is it religious? Is... <laughs> Is evangelical an ethnicity? Is Presbyterian an ethnicity? That might sound silly to you, but some are actually arguing yes these days. I, I would argue a different term like tribe might be more helpful there. Whatever terminology gets used, here's where I want our focus to be. Ethnic animosity and ethnic vainglory are two of the most basic roots of division and hatred and sin for entire groups of people across entire generations. Ethnic animosity and ethnic vainglory have throughout all human history been two of the most powerful engines for pride, bitterness, violence, and as we see today, even war. Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says Jesus Christ has abolished the animosity. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, Christ doesn't only bring peace. He does that. Uh, for example, we, we, saw, we, we saw that at the end of uh, verse 15, I believe. Um, so making peace. And then in verse 17, it talks about how Jesus preaches peace. But also Christ Himself in His body on the cross is our peace peace. And what we can take from that is what we're saying there is apart from Him, there is no shalom. We have no peace. From a Jewish perspective, there were only two groups of people in the world. The Jews and everybody else. Right? What distinguished the Jewish people above any other distinction that we often think of when we talk about distinctions like appearance or skin color or language was the fact that they were near to God. That's what the temple was, right? A, a testament to the fact that God was with them and for them and was giving them atonement for sin. All the other nations were defiled pagans, far from God, far from His promises, far from the stories of His glory. And for the few Gentiles that saw the, the, the city on the hill, beacon of light that Israel was meant to be, and came to worship Yahweh, there was still a dividing wall, a literal dividing wall in the temple for them. Paul says here that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been brought 
down. So that requires, at the very least, requires a lot more than this actually, but at the very least, that we reframe, or if you like, reform our categories and understanding of how Jesus means for us to treat and get on with one another, and by one another I mean those who proclaim his name. Look at verse 15. How did he do this? How did he break down the dividing wall? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, his body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus Christ has united Jew and Gentile and broken down their dividing wall by, our text tells us, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, it's really important that we are clear here and understand what's being said. I want to emphasize first what we're not saying. This text does not say that Jesus, by his death on the cross, abolished the moral law of God. The moral law summed up in one word is Love. Paul says that in Romans 13, I believe Romans 13, 8. And love has certainly not been abolished. The whole argument here is about the historic division between Jew and Gentile. Paul's talking about a subset within the law, the commandments contained in ordinances that Christ abolished in his flesh. That is, in his body on the cross, Christ brought to conclusion the ceremonial laws and regulations that had historically separated Jew and Gentile. In other words, those ceremonial laws had a specific purpose in history. That is, to point, those laws were meant to point and to highlight the election of Israel and their consecration as a holy people distinct from the world. Those laws had done their job. They had fulfilled their task. The theological term for this is fulfillment. They had done their job, so they're no longer necessary. One new nation has been created out of Jew and Gentile. Christ is now peace and the basis of peace and the giver of peace. He has made peace because He is our peace. And so that is the hostility abolished. Next is the reconciliation established. Hostility has been abolished. Reconciliation has been established. Verses 15 and 16 again. I know we just read it. We'll read it again. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and here it is, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. With the hostility killed, Jew and Gentile can now be reconciled. But this reconciliation is not a peace treaty where they come together to settle their differences. It's not a negotiation where the Jews give up some things and the Gentiles give up some things so that they can now negotiate a compromise for the sake of unity. The hostility isn't negotiated, it's killed through the body of Christ on the cross. God does not deal with sinful hostility by negotiating it. He deals with sinful hostility by killing it. What I want you to see here is that Paul understands that the reconciliation of real, we might say horizontal, person-to-person relationships on earth is a necessary consequence of the gospel. You have been reconciled to God, we might say vertical reconciliation. Therefore, 
you must be horizontal, reconciled to one another. Paul is saying that for reconciliation to happen, again, horizontal person to person, there is first a vertical reconciliation that needs to happen, which will then necessarily result in the horizontal person to person reconciliation here on earth. It is a consequent blessing, but also a necessary blessing. It has to follow. Reconciled fellowship and being at peace with each other is not a bonus for some Christians who happen to be a little bit less irritable. It is our calling as a people. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. comes just before our assurance of pardon text this morning. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not we have the option of fellowship. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that really cool how that works? That, that the cleansing blood of Jesus, that reconciliation, is the one that's enabling and working the other reconciliation that we have fellowship with one another. By way of application, I have noticed that when it comes to forgiveness and reconciliation in our relationships... There are two ways of talking about it, or, or two, um, yeah, I'll just say two ways of talking about it, that can kind of serve as two different ditches that we can fall into. So let's remember what Jesus said about forgiveness in Matthew 18. Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times 7, the Greek can cut either way there. The first ditch you can fall into with a text like this is what I call forgiveness as an eraser. Okay, so the idea behind this is that when you forgive someone, if you really mean it, they're entitled to a full and immediate restoration of the whole relationship before the offense. So forgiveness means forgetting everything bad that ever happened and pretending like it never happened. Sometimes that goes hand in hand with forgiveness. But it can be problematic if applied to every situation. It could be even be very foolish. I mean, if someone abuses your children and then later asks for forgiveness, you should forgive them. Jesus said so. But you are not... Uh, called and demanded to forgive with an immediate reestablishing of full trust. You'd be an idiot to ever leave them alone with your children after that. But the other ditch, if you like, the other ditch is forgiveness without an eraser, right? That is, our flesh loves the idea of qualified forgiveness. We are very threatened by Jesus' Jesus's words of 77 times or 70 times 7. So we take a true statement, which is, you know, sometimes forgiveness does not mean restoration of trust immediately and all that. Yes. And we use it to say, forgiveness for me never has to mean restoration of trust. In fact, while I'm at it, how else can I hollow out this forgiveness and make it the smallest sacrifice ever? How else can we protect ourselves from the uncomfortable intensity of Jesus' words, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The reason why the Apostle Paul has to spend so much time in the New Testament on this Jew-Gentile matter is probably because there would be no shortage of attempts to blunt the astonishing weight of this command of reconciliation. 
or its incalculable, incalculable implications. But Christ has taken down the wall of hostility and has killed the hostility itself. He has reconciled us to the Father. Therefore, we must be beacons of forgiveness, banners of forgiveness, homes, kitchens, living rooms of forgiveness, churches of forgiveness and reconciliation. So part of my, part of my word to you this morning, dear saints, is what is the sin you've been holding and refusing to forgive of someone? What's the relationship you've decided to totally shut out because, well, Jesus said I had to love him, but he didn't say I had to like him, right? What's the group of people that you have decided are beyond the hope of peace with your group, beyond the hope of peace with your team? Because let's be honest, you just like life better if it doesn't involve those people. And so the first point was that the uh, hostility uh, has been, sorry, I forgot my own point. Hostility has been abolished. Reconciliation has been established. The third point is that peace in Jesus Christ has been proclaimed. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So through the Son, we have access to one Spirit, to the Father. So having proclaimed the end of the hostility and this gift of new covenant reconciliation, Paul then sets before us, I think, this rather interesting picture of Jesus Christ, the preacher, coming to preach to those who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and those who are near, that's the Jews. Both are separated, by the way, not just from each other, but from God. Both need Christ for salvation. One might be nearer because they have an awareness of the promises. Both need to be brought in. Both have been reconciled to God in Christ. Therefore, they must be about the work of reconciling with each other. <coughs> and from what we know so far, we know that Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is right now by His Holy Spirit in the world preaching what he's already accomplished. Right? Jesus Christ is our peace and he's preaching peace. Jesus has the right, the right, the authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Jesus has the right and the authority to preach to every tribe, every tongue, every nation because he has accomplished peace in his body on the tree. The reason why there is no longer and dear saints, must no longer be a dividing wall of ethnic hostility in the church is because you can't have ethnic hostility in your own family. How dumb is that? Right? I mean, really, like, that's, that's like as, the best I can do is, a, is, is say, a group of, of, of Scotsmen sitting around a table, and they're all related. They all have the same McDougal last name. They're looking around and saying, you know, the real problem we have here is ethnic hostility. <laughs> what? You're the same family. How does that even work? Exactly. How can two brothers engage in ethnic animosity or ethnic vainglory when they're the same ethnic? How are you going to have ethnic hostility when you both have the same father? You see why Jesus commands that his people be gathered around a table. 
What could be more family-oriented than supper, right? The peace proclaimed in Christ is that all who are in Christ now all have one Father. That's really important because when we all come to the table, right, we come with different backgrounds, histories, ancestry, stories. And while those identifiers, your your ethnicity, your family background, where you come from, your bloodline, all that, those identifiers do not, are not dissolved when we come to Jesus. They are dissolved in so far as they are walls of hostility. Let's think for a moment about Paul's words in Galatians. A letter he very likely wrote before Ephesians was probably, though, Ephesians probably not written long after. In fact, they have a lot of similar themes. Paul writes in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28, a passage that you're probably familiar with. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now some have read those words and have said, Therefore the Lord Jesus has dissolved all distinctions completely. There are no distinctions. You get get no label except Christian. And you are all one amorphous Christian blob in Christ. But neither Paul nor the other apostles speak that way in other parts of the New Testament. In Romans 1 and 2, for example, Christian, Jews and Gentiles, are still addressed with respective specificity. And then throughout the New Testament, you have addresses to men, women, husbands, wives, children, slaves, masters, all are addressed with specific distinctions and responsibilities. In, for example, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. In the book of Revelation, we read that every tribe and people and language is gathered around the throne, which tells us at the very least that tribes and nations and languages have not ceased to exist, even as they all worship around the throne. So what has changed? What's been abolished? What's been dissolved? Jesus Christ has killed the option that such distinctions can ever be used to build dividing walls of hostility between adopted sons of God. It's impossible. You know, you know how I know? Because you've been baptized into Christ. That's what Paul said in Galatians. He starts with baptism and then goes to, for there is neither, so on and so forth. As many of you were baptized, Paul says, have put on Christ. You are marked with the sign of the covenant that on the last day will either be a word of divine grace over you or a word of divine judgment against you. It is a serious thing to take on the mark of the covenant. And by this mark, we enter into a family. Which means we have now been initiated, as it were, into a royal family with a royal heritage. And so, when we get together... We tell stories of our family. We talk about Moses, our brother. King David, our brother. Esther, our sister. Peter and James and John, all our brothers. Of Jesus Christ, our elder brother, who has brought us peace with God our Father. And therefore, how shall we not be peacemakers, right? Indeed, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. 
the Son of God has made peace. Therefore, we follow after our elder brother by making peace. Such is the calling of sons of God. So our text this morning emphasizes that Jesus Christ has taken down the dividing wall of hostility by killing the hostility. How does this take shape? Again, here's where the applications could run wild for a while. I'm just going to throw two at you as we start to wrap up. Mutual admonishment and fast forgiveness. Mutual admonishment and fast forgiveness. Okay, first mutual admonishment. One of the ways the wickedness of our world seeks to ensure and solidify and protect ethnic animosity and ethnic vainglory, make sure that it endures through generations, is to create systems of entitlement or bitterness that always feed each other and never end. Paul writes often of this peace between Jew and Gentile while never delineating the, uh, the proper groveling or reparation measures. He does not say, now as for these Jews, right? They really treated you Gentiles poorly. It seems to me that is what, what is now necessary is for them to keep their mouths shut for a solid seven generations so that the oppressors can finally undergo the penitential suffering under the boots of the oppressed. Rather, Paul has the audacity to say things like, Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That sounds like something you say to brothers. The walls of hostility have come down. That means we need each other in the body to hear and to speak. One of the most astonishing moments, I think, in the New Testament is when Paul says, it's in Colossians 3.11, we're going to jump over there real quick. Familiar, it sounds like the Galatians 3 text. He says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Little history lesson real quick. Anybody know what a Scythian is? <laughs> say, say it again, Eddie. Very, very bad dude. Yeah. The short version is there's a reason Paul distinguished barbarians from Scythians, and that is calling the Scythians barbarians would have been too nice. This was an absolutely bloodthirsty tribe of people who would wear the skin of their victims in war, drink their blood, and use their skulls as cups and dishes. Can you not... Can you not imagine a congregational meeting in Colossae? <laughs> and a Scythian stands up to speak about the peace that we have in Christ. He's noticed some infighting and some factioning going on. We really need to deal with that. And you can just imagine some Greek fellow three pews over, muttering under his breath, Really? I'm going to hear about peace and kindness and unity from a Scythian? Maybe you should sit this one out and let the Athenians handle it, Mr. Skin Shirt. You need to educate yourself and do better. Not hard to imagine, is it? That's when you realize that this call to unity in Christ is the death of both ethnic animosity and ethnic vainglory. He's not just saying you can no longer use these categories to be hateful. He's also saying you can't use them to be prideful. 
The church in Africa and Arabia and Asia can teach us quite a lot about suffering and endurance and patience. And the church in America can say quite a lot about how God blesses faithful people and how He afflicts those same people when they despise their blessings and curse Him. Some churches sweep divorce and ethnic hostility under the rug. Some churches sweep abortion and fornication under the rug. Some churches sweep domestic abuse or sexual scandal under the rug. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. Be careful lest you be tempted. So my first, first application was um, mutual admonishment. The, the next one is fast forgiveness. I am more convinced that while the, uh, that, that if you want to try to uh, um, monitor your own sanctification, that can be tricky business. But I do think that over the long arc of life, you will notice a, a decline of the frequency of certain besetting sins in your life. That's one of God's mercies to you, just a way to observe His work in you. Another way is to observe the speed of repentance and forgiveness. I have started saying to husbands and wives in marriage counseling, the time you spend getting even is the time you could have used to build something together. If you want to engage in a little friendly competition, I've got a new game for you. First one to repent wins. First one to own their own sin without qualification wins. First one to show the fruit of repentance by changed patterns in their life. Super wins. Okay? That's the super winner. Play that game. Compete on that level. You play that game, everybody wins. Especially your kids. If the wall between Jew and Gentile can come down in Christ, God forgive us for building our own walls of hostility between ethnic groups between other groups, between families, between husband and wife. There is, by the way, no greater way to make the gospel look unbelievable, and I mean that literally, to make it look unbelievable, than to take this picture of Christ and the church and make it look horrible. Right? Jesus Christ has reconciled all men to Himself, to His Father. We are all called, Jew, Gentile, every other... <laughs> every other ethnic organizational method you want to apply, all are called to know this God and to worship Him alone. We have been called into fellowship with the Father by the voice, promises, and blood of the Son, enabled to come by the work of the Holy Spirit. As I heard it once put, the Father is the direction we're going, the Son is the road, the Spirit is the vehicle who brings us there. Jesus Christ has come. By His own blood, He has bound us together and killed the hostility. Far be it from us to try to raise it up from the dead. He who is our peace then preaches peace to us every step of the way. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. And so our Father, we ask for help in this because we need help in this. Everything in our flesh since you declared enmity between man and uh, the serpent, and between the woman 
and the serpent. We, in our sin, have tried to establish enmity just about everywhere else. And so we ask for your mercy on us as we seek to live out what's already real, as we seek to preach the peace of Christ, Christ himself who preaches peace to us and is our peace. Grant that we would reflect that more and more in Jesus' name. Amen.